everyone. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Crushing poverty, rampant drug addiction, underemployment, unaffordable health care, staggering wealth disparity, declining life expectancy. That is just a partial list of the issues that weigh down millions of people right here in the wealthiest nation on the planet. Why is that happening? Why does it persist across so much of our country and across many generations? And what should we be doing to make opportunity more plentiful and more accessible to more Americans? Especially, how do we do that in rural America, which is increasingly isolated from the rest of our country. These are the questions at the heart of a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning husband and wife team Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn. Their new book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, says the American working class is in crisis due to half a century of what can only be described as malign neglect. That's where we begin the conversation today. What do we do about poverty in America? And what do we do about poverty in rural America, which looks different and has different origins than the poverty that we see in places, for instance, like Detroit? I want to welcome Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun to Detroit Today. Guys, it is great to have you here. Delighted to be here, Stephen. Good to be with you, Stephen. So let's first start with you guys talking about what you mean when you talk about a crisis in the working class in America and why that's what you chose to explore in this new book. Well, we so the, the backdrop for the book is we were uh, covering international humanitarian crises, and we would periodically return to my beloved hometown in rural Oregon, where my mom is still on the family farm, and we saw that there was a humanitarian crisis unfolding in my hometown. And in particular, I'm close to the kids on my old school bus route, Um, A quarter of those kids have passed away from drugs, alcohol, uh, suicide, and related uh, diseases. And we we realized that this wasn't one crisis in one one bus route. This was a national problem, uh, deaths of despair, that that in some ways this was like the Great Depression. But even in the Great Depression, life expectancy had improved. Now life expectancy for the country was falling. And so... You know, simultaneously, we have some, we have the stock market hitting highs, but we have millions of Americans who are wrestling with um, addiction, early death, uh, dropped out of the job market, and this is largely not geography based, but class based. It's it's America's working class that is just disintegrated. Hmm. It's interesting that you draw the comparison here between what we see in this country among working-class Americans and what you see traveling the globe writing about humanitarian crises. I'm not sure that for most people that connection is obvious. Cheryl, can you talk about what you guys see and and why that leaps out at you? It is true that uh, for, for many years when we used to travel around the world and re- reported uh, in the developing world about some of the uh, issues there and the poverty there, I used to tell people that uh, you just can't imagine what the poverty is like uh, you know, in the developing world. It's an order of magnitude 
um, beyond what you can imagine here in the wealthiest country on earth. Then when we started doing more deeper reporting uh, for this book and we started really probing uh, the lives of these people, you know, you meet someone, there are a couple of these um, people who work on the family farm and we would see them every day. They'd have a smile on their face. We would talk to them. And, you know, we knew that they were working class, but, you know, we didn't think that there was too many problems. But as we started reporting, we started learning more about their lives. Uh, it really, what was unfolding was a, an enormous calamity. And look, here in the U.S., people may have uh, running water, they have plumbing, they have electricity, and they have flat screen TVs even. <laughs> but uh, there are people around the rest of the world who are desperately coming, want, seeking to come to America because they believe in the American dream. But Americans here, so many are floundering because for them, the American dream is broken. Hmm. So <clears throat> on January 9th of this year, the, the two of you wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, that that is drawn off of this work, and it's titled "Who Killed the Knapp Family." Uh, I want you to talk about the Knapp family in a little more depth, and talk about that piece. Who did kill the Knapp family? The uh, five Knapp kids used to get on the school bus uh, right after I did. They their dad uh, had a good job laying pipe, uh, mostly sewer pipe, a good union job. Uh, the mom had a job uh, driving tractor on a nearby hazelnut farm. They had very much moved up in the world. They had uh, bought their own home. They, um, when Farland, the oldest, who was my grade, when he turned 16, he got a Ford Mustang for his birthday, and we were all incredibly jealous of Farland. <laughs> um, and because their dad had had limited education and had still managed to get good jobs, I think that they thought that a high school diploma was not particularly necessary. All five kids dropped out of school. And then the upshot was they struggled and floundered in the job market, uh, far, and then they self-medicated. Uh, Farlin uh, died of liver disease related to alcohol and drug use. Uh, his brother, Zelan, died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Rogina uh, died of hepatitis uh, related to drug use. And uh, Nathan blew himself up cooking meth. The only survivor of the five was Keelan, the youngest, who um, survived because he spent 13 years in the in the state penitentiary. And... You know, in, in some ways they were outliers, Stephen, but there was another family also with five kids on the school bus, and in that other family as well, four of the five mm. are now gone. Um, so we wrote about that family as uh, the Knapp family as kind of a microcosm of the challenges we we as a country face. And who killed the, the Knapp family? Um, when... So... In Yamhill, Yamhill is basically lily white, and in the 90s, when uh, uh, people in Yamhill and, and other white communities were looking at struggles in the black community, they were prone to diagnose what they called uh, issues with black culture, mm -hmm. and they blamed deadbeat dads and um, self-destructive behaviors, use of drugs, uh, family breakdown, uh, and so on. And meanwhile, the great sociologist uh, William Julius Wilson said, no, it's about, it's about jobs, lost jobs. 
And he was exactly right, because when jobs left white communities like Yamhill, you had the same patterns unfold. And so what killed the Knapp family? I think it was lost jobs, but, you know, not... This isn't just like automation randomly happening. This was bad policy decisions that the U.S. made so that lost jobs resulted in a far greater toll in America than they did in Germany or Canada or anywhere else. Hmm. And, and again, the, 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 the greater context there, I think, is the thing that is so so harrowing that, that, I mean, this is an incredible amount of loss for any one family to endure but as you point out in the piece and in the book this is this is far more common than it than it should be it's a lot more common in fact uh recently uh actually um a couple of times the federal reserve does surveys <coughs> and they have found that um 40% of people they surveyed cannot afford a $400 car repair bill without going into debt uh, or, uh, you know, significant uh, borrowing from family members. Uh, that's an enormous figure. I mean, this is not, you know, 20% of the population, 40% of those surveyed. And if you actually then look at the the next 10 percentage points, 50 to 60, it's not as though, though those people are, are, you know, buying second homes. I mean, it's a gradation. And so you have a lot of people uh, you know, in the country who are, these are millions, tens of millions of people who are are really um, just barely breaking even. Uh, the minimum wage in 1968, uh, if it had accounted for inflation and productivity gains, uh, should be about $22 per hour. Uh, and that actually, um, you know, could afford a decent living for a lot of people. But in fact, the federal minimum wage is $7.25. Hmm. Wow. Wow. So, so I, I wonder before we get into some of the specifics in the book, and I've got a lot of examples I want to pull out and have you guys address. But I wonder about the the urgency of now with this problem, and and why in 2020 we're seeing this in the way that we are, and whether there's a difference between what we're confronting in America today than industrial changes in the past, for instance, that have created massive upheaval for the working class. I mean, there have been lots of periods of time in this country where things have been tough for people who don't have privilege or means. Is there something particular about now that stands out to you, too? In terms of why the urgency... Um, look, every two weeks we lose more Americans from drugs, alcohol, and suicide than we did in the entire 18 years of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Um, you know, the, the scale really is staggering. And I think that that analogy with the Great Depression is a useful one. You know, we did not suffer that kind of lethality during the Great Depression, but still the country responded and there was a rush to develop policies to ease the suffering. And what is frustrating is that right now the country is not responding to this um, great social depression with policies that help. And in fact, if anything, a lot of the policies um, exacerbate the, the suffering. Um, and I think that, you know, we, we wondered about, about the difference in 
between this suffering and that in past episodes. Um, why, during the Great Depression, when jobs were lost, did you not have this unraveling of the social fabric? And mm-hmm. I think it was because back then there were these social institutions, churches, um, community organizations that people were a part of and that helped that the social fabric remain strong. In the last 20 years or so that those institutions have uh, receded and so that when people lost their jobs or sense of identity, they didn't have a support network and that made them more likely to uh, self-medicate and collapse into a miasma of loneliness and uh, they just spiral downward. I also think that uh, there is uh, an impact on the entire country. Uh, in many ways, uh, the election of Trump was basically, uh, you know, a, a sort of a wake-up call that there are a lot of angry and resentful, disgruntled workers mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, feel that they need a message that is anti-establishment. I mean, he's a non-politician politician who is totally out outside of the, uh, you know, establishment wanting to break it up, and that's how they feel. And so we all do have, uh, you know, a um, a reason to actually, you know, care more about these people in society. Mm-hmm. My guests are Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. They are authors of the new book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. We're talking about this deep dive into the crisis among the working class here in America, especially in rural communities, something that we don't often get a chance to think about here in the city of Detroit. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us whether you believe that this is a country that affords real opportunity for all Americans to succeed. Of course, that's a fundamental part of our identity as Americans, but is there still truth to it? Is there still the ability to move ahead, even if you start life at the very bottom? If so, why do you think so many people struggle to grasp that opportunity and achieve a better life for themselves? If not, tell us what needs to happen to create those opportunities for people who don't have them. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Chris on the phones. Chris, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning, Stephen. How are you today? Sure, great. I'm I'm good. How are um, you? So one of the one of the things I was thinking about is uh, during the Great Depression, people could go literally to a bank and talk to their banker and talk to everybody, and they had the social cre- uh, the social connection. Now today, we use computers and algorithms to do that, and we have this thing called credit. With the with the with the theory of credit, we don't have the we don't have the uh, we don't have the social interaction to actually go into help it to actually helping a person and actually doing something. Hmm. So therefore a person is more likely to fail over the long term. Hmm. Chris, I, I really appreciate the call and the comments as you were talking and describing that I was thinking of uh, one of my one of my favorite movies, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which uh, of course is about this idea of small community banking and the impact it can have on people. And I was wondering, uh, I guess, how that relates uh, to the other kinds of things that have changed in our society since that movie was made, since 
since institutions like that existed, and that's technology, which you're talking about, which, of course, separates us uh, in some ways uh, that that other uh, sort of past technologies have not done. Uh, Nick and and Cheryl, I wonder what you make of what uh, Chris is talking about here. Well, it certainly is true that we have uh, uh, a lot fewer community organizations and institutions. As as Nick said earlier, we, just, we don't have churches uh, to help support uh, people. We just don't have community community banks. They, they, they don't do that as much. There aren't as many of them. Uh, I mean, there are still some community banks, but not as many. Uh, but the other thing that's also prevalent, uh, you know, as as technology does pervade, we, we get on Facebook, we have many more, uh, you know, connections with people on Facebook, but there is sort of an epidemic of loneliness. Mm-hmm. And that is something that uh, is being documented not only here in the U.S., but elsewhere, but we have not here recognized it. Uh, loneliness, um, actually, by some studies, is the, the equivalent. It impacts your health, too. It is the equivalent of smoking about 13 to 15 cigarettes a day. I mean, that's how potentially lethal it is. Uh, the other thing is that there's an overinvestment in this narrative of personal responsibility uh, in that we should lift ourselves up by the bootstraps. Mm. But, you know, you really can't do that on by yourself. <laughs> but we, we sort of say that this is what, you know, it's your fault. All these decisions that you've made uh, that created your failing are your fault. And so there isn't this impetus to, to help uh, other people in society. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. Uh, We're going to continue to hear from you as well. Tom in Northwest Detroit, Angelique in Auburn Hills, Ed in Detroit, Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers, Dan in Southfield. We'll get to you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests this hour are Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. They are authors of the new book, Tightrope Americans Reaching for Hope, which takes a really close look at the crisis of the working class here in America, especially in rural communities, places that don't get as much attention sometimes as urban cores like Detroit, where we have, of course, historic and uh, entrenched poverty as well. Uh, We're talking about opportunity and the way that it unfolds for people in these communities. Is that different today than it used to be? How do we change those opportunities, open up more of them so people are able to get ahead? Uh, As always, we want to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Cheryl and Nick, before uh, we get back to our conversation, I I want to interject a call into this because uh, Dan in Southfield has a point that I want to get to you get to with you guys next. So Dan in Southfield, uh, yes, uh, to the show. Good, good morning and Thanks. wonderful show as always, Stephen. Thanks. Um, I uh, I just curious that what do you think the effects are? In other words, for instance, there were laws against black people buying property or moving in. I mean, there's the Burwood Wall in the middle of Detroit. I mean, there there were there were there were legal restrictions on 
people of color and and so they and they understood this mm -hmm. but i think some i think there's something about being white and i'm white that you think that you can't fall into this situation that that you don't deserve to be poor and i've met people who were are poor and don't acknowledge it and and it's just the strangest thing it's mm -hmm. like it's like it's like this weird self-destructive attitude that's built in like Oh, I don't know how to describe it any better than what I just did. Yeah, no, Dan, I, th I think you did a very good job of describing it. Uh, uh, Nick and Cheryl, the reason I wanted to interject Dan into the conversation is because I, I think in your book you do a remarkable job of addressing race and racial differences. Uh, some of that work is reflected in cities like Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, but some of it is also reflected in these rural communities where I think a lot of times we forget that there are also African-Americans who live in, in, in some of these places. So I, I want you to talk just a little about how race intersects with this working class crisis that you are documenting. Sure. Um, so, you know, one point that African-Americans make, and they're absolutely right, is that these problems aren't particularly new. And um, you know, that African-American communities have been struggling with them for decades and that, you know, in the case of, of opioids, now finally when whites are dying large numbers, then there's a outpouring of concern and the framing switches from uh, junkies to uh, people suffering from addiction. And, you know, and there's there's no doubt that there is a real double standard. There's a, a considerable level of hypocrisy. I mean, I, I also think that we may finally now get more sensible and compassionate responses, uh, partly as a result. I I also, though, um, Stephen, I, I think I'd push back as something you were suggesting, which is that there is a, a, a significant difference between rural poverty and urban poverty. Mm -hmm. You know, in in many ways, I do think that there is a... There, there are striking commonalities, both in the in the nature of the problem and in the solutions. And uh, I do think that the basic problem, whether in um, in urban African American communities or in uh, or in in rural areas, either those where whites live or those where there are people of color, that um, you know the the problem was that jobs went away and that we as a country underinvested in human capital, leaving an awful lot of people uh, unable to compete in the job market, and that these solutions, whether we're talking about the you know, parts of, of urban areas uh, or in rural areas, they do involve things like early childhood education, uh, job training and job retraining, um, job support and and uh, and also drug treatment. It is crazy that in the U.S. only one in ten people with substance abuse get treatment, and that we responded with this harsh law enforcement approach, um, locking people up rather than providing treatment, which is much cheaper and which, by some studies, pays for itself up to twelve times over with reduced 
uh, criminal justice spending and reduce health spending. Mm. You know, I, 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 I said what I had said about the differences between uh, rural and urban poverty. I think thinking about uh, the, the some of the experiences that I had growing up here in the city of Detroit and then going off in my first job to work uh, in Kentucky and in Appalachia and kind of noticing I think some of the same things that that you guys were talking about initially about some of the distinctions between poverty in the developing world and poverty in the United States so for instance here in Detroit even uh, poor communities often are adjacent to or within reach of mm. wealthier communities whose resources make some things available that you wouldn't have in 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 other communities right. sometimes schools for instance or or better shopping or better health care services in, in in fact uh, when I went to to Kentucky and and was reporting in Appalachia the thing that struck me more than anything was the the isolating nature of poverty there that that if you were poor and living uh, in the coal counties in eastern Kentucky, it was a long way to get to something better. And just that physical yeah. difference was was really striking. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call, Dan, in uh, Southfield. Let's go to Aaron in Jefferson Chalmers. Aaron, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Aaron. Go ahead. I have one word neoliberalism. Our politicians over the past 35 years have failed us with their belief that the market would cure all ills. And, well, that, that proved right for the billionaire class. It's improved their lot in life, but the rest of us have suffered, and that goes with politicians, both Democratic and Republican. Hmm. Uh, Aaron, I appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, Cheryl and Nick, in the book, you use the phrase malign neglect uh, to describe this policy uh, disposition that has helped fuel the the things that you're talking about. Uh, Tell us what you mean by that and and give us some examples. There are definitely um, issues with the policymaking after 1970s uh, where we basically uh, before that had had a very inclusive uh, capitalism. Uh, Everybody was progressing and growth actually included um, all stakeholders. But after the 1970s when growth began to slow and uh, there was higher inflation. They adopted policies uh, to actually address that, but in fact, it was deregulation, it was uh, cuts, uh, you know, uh, tax cuts for the wealthy, uh, and we transferred a lot of power from unions to, to business. We overshot. And the result is that there is now a tale of two Americas, and there is exclusive capitalism. We have a capitalism that has worked uh, for the very top, uh, but it has left behind the very bottom. And so that's why you get problems uh, where, for instance, we've just we cut the budget for affordable housing in the 1980s. Reagan was uh, just cut it in half. And so affordable housing is a real problem. Homelessness is the extreme example of that. And mm-hmm. we're all talking about the problem of homelessness. But actually, affordable housing, it, you know, is, is the broader issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no place in this country where if you were a couple, uh, each earning the minimum wage, uh, working 40 hours a week, full-time job with two kids, there's no place in the country where you can find a two-bedroom apartment and pay you know, just the um, standard, uh, under the standard guidelines of no more than 30% of your gross income. Hmm. Uh, I want to, I want to talk about 
two chapters in the book that I think get to some of the things that we've already talked about, but I want to dive just a little deeper into them. One is called Drug Dealers in Lab Coats, uh, which which, uh, talks about sort of the onset of the opioid crisis and some of the other drug problems that, that we're dealing with. And then the next chapter is losing the war on drugs. Can you walk us through the, the role that drugs and drug addiction are playing uh, in this problem? Yeah, and it's, it's enormous in, you know, in all kinds of ways. Um, um, so, so in the past, in, in some of the microcosms that we talk about, there had been alcoholism. And, you know, that's a, that's a problem. But it's much easier to be a functional alcoholic than it is to be somebody, who, a, a functional drug user. And then because we engaged in the war on drugs, then people got criminal convictions, which made them much less employable and also less marriageable. One of the things that I think conservatives kind of got right over the last 50 years was the importance of families and and family structure as a way to to give kids a a a, a support base but what they got <laughs> but paradoxically the war on drugs just unraveled the family structure in America particularly for uh for for people of color and also for um to some degree for working class whites and um, and drugs were also just toxic for local social capital. Some of those social institutions that we talked about earlier, one of the reasons they fell apart was because of uh, the rise of meth and later uh, opioids. But, you know, I guess what was frustrating for us also was the inequity in how this was pursued. We write in Tightrope about a... African-American woman uh, who was a longtime user uh, of heroin and to finance her habit, she uh, transported drugs, uh, was caught in Alabama, was sentenced to 999 years Mm -hmm. for purely nonviolent offenses, Uh, 999 years for contributing absolutely negligibly to, to the drug epidemic in the U.S. Meanwhile, the pharma companies, you know, beginning in the 1990s, they were trying to create block blo- blockbuster drugs, and they um, sponsored research, effectively paid kickbacks, uh, and uh, led to an explosion of of uh, prescription painkillers that then led in turn to heroin. And so, 80% of people using Heroin today started with prescription painkillers, and you know those those pharma executives. Um, while Geneva Cooley is was sent off to prison, those pharma executives they were not prosecuted, and indeed um, the Sackler family, for example, ended up with thirteen billion dollars, uh, and you know that is just so offensive and outrageous. Um, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Um, uh, can, I would like to talk also uh, about the difference between what you see in terms of drugs and the effect that they're having in urban areas, which you deal with somewhat in the book, and how they play out in in rural communities. 
There really, uh, you know, is um, a similar impact in both rural and urban areas. And so the solutions uh, can be very similar. And that's what's really critical is that, you know, people will start self-medicating if they've lost their job uh, and they can't find another job in the area because a lot of, you know, if you have the local glove factory, which was a huge employer, the biggest employer in the area, and then they close down, then that's a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, all people working, looking for jobs where there are no other jobs in the local area. And it's hard for a lot of these uh, poorer people to to move, uh, to relocate. And... Uh, so there have been a number of very interesting solutions that work both urban and rural. Uh, one of them that we write about in Baltimore is called Baltimore Station, and mm-hmm. uh, it uh, is originally f- focused on uh, homeless veterans, uh, which is, you know, look, homeless v- homelessness is a, an obdurate problem that you know, the entire nation is, is trying to figure out. Well, we did figure out, the country did figure out how to address um, veteran homelessness because it was such an embarrassing problem to have so many vets homeless. Uh, and Baltimore Station is an example. It takes people who are veterans who are homeless, who have addictions, who are you know maybe alcoholics, and it treats them. It it really we have treatments for these drug problems for opioids. You can use Suboxone, uh, and they bring these uh, people in. They you know go through treatment, special treatment if they need it for for an addiction, and they also take classes that will actually uh, help them recover their lives and and learn business skills so they can get back into the community. Uh, and it, they it gives them therapy. Therapy is also very very important. And so we write about Daniel McDowell, who was an Army veteran who uh, you know. Um, was in Baltimore Station, and he's now recovering his life. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you as well. We've still got lots of folks on the line, Watson, Detroit, and Detroit, Myrna and Ipsy, and Bradford and Celine. We will get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guests are Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. They are authors of the new book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. We're talking about that deep dive that they have taken into the world of the working class crisis in America, especially in rural communities. Uh, We want to hear from you this hour as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before we get back to listeners, I want to read a passage from uh, a chapter in the book called Universal Healthcare, One Day, One Town, and then have you guys tell us more about what you're writing about here. Uh, It begins, once a year in Wise, Virginia, a small town in the rolling hills of Appalachia, people begin lining up outside the gate of the county fairgrounds days in advance. They camp out in sleeping bags, drink coffee out of thermoses, and watch videos as trucks bring circus-sized tents 
dental equipment, and medical cots pass them into the fairgrounds. On the night before the big opening, the crowd swells hugely into a serpentine line on the grass beside the road. The parking lots fill up, and parents and children doze together as doctors, dentists, and technicians arrive in the wee hours to set up. The time we were there at 5 a.m., still in a pre-dawn inky darkness, the fairgrounds gates swung open and a tall man with a British accent welcomed everyone and ushered in the first few hundred people in line. I, I, I wanted to read that passage because I think it gets directly to the comparison that you guys made at the beginning of the hour to poverty in the developing world and poverty in the United States. That scene seems like something I would watch on television uh, being broadcast to me from somewhere around the globe. It does not seem like the way healthcare would be managed in, again, the wealthiest nation on the planet. Yeah, the the group that in fact provides healthcare at that uh, fair, it's called Remote Area Medical. And it was created to provide health care, to bring doctors and dentists to poor countries around the world. And it just happened to have its office, its head office in Tennessee. And then somebody asked them to provide health care services in the next town over. And they were kind of startled by the request, but they they did so. And they found a huge demand. And so now remote area medical um, provide they still provide services in the developing world, but also in poor parts of the U.S. And you know this also is you know, no other OECD country requires these kind of health fairs. When we went, there was uh, we saw uh, in the, one person I talked to was having eighteen teeth pulled, eighteen teeth pulled simultaneously. Wow. Um, and meanwhile, two chairs over, somebody was getting twenty-one teeth pulled because they never had access to a dentist. Um, and, you know, in the in the vision area, there were people coming in. I mean, it was just, it was staggering. There were vision people coming in who'd, who couldn't recognize the, the largest letter on the chart. And then they'd be asked, you know, so how did you get here? And, oh, I drove. Oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of staggering. And in uh, one of the things that struck us was that in uh, in a county in South Dakota, Shannon County, life expectancy is shorter than in Cambodia or Bangladesh, um, in the richest country in the history of the world. I mean, how can that be? Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to Detroit. Uh, as usual, wonderful program. Your guests have talked about some of the structural and technological changes that have occurred in the United States. But these changes, in many ways, are going on in all wealthy uh, countries, the OECD countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm wondering whether your guests could contrast how other OECD countries have dealt with these changes and how we have dealt with them. Also, Stephen, if you haven't had him on your program, you might invite T.R. Reid, formerly of mm-hmm. the Washington Post, mm-hmm. to come on and talk about his examination of how universal health care works around the world. Mm-hmm. 
great suggestion. (laughs) Great suggestion as always, Ed. I really appreciate the call. Uh, Cheryl and Nick uh, talk about the contrast between not just America and the developing world, but America and the developed world. There are real differences as well. There are. And actually, uh, up until the 1970s, again, the U.S. was doing fine. We were ahead and we were at the top level. We were on, you know, on par with all of our peers. But we have been slipping since then. And to give you just a real concrete example, uh, when after the financial crisis, uh, there were auto workers laid off both in Detroit, as you well know, uh, but also in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Mm -hmm. And so it was easy to compare what happened to those um, laid off auto workers. So in the U.S., uh, because of the unusual circumstances, they extended um, unemployment benefits. So people got more cash, but they still had no health care. They lost their health care and they lost their job. And so they had to find jobs in a town that was really, you know, all auto workers. But in in neighboring Windsor, uh, they, first of all, didn't lose their health care. So the families didn't have that huge stressor on them. But they also had a government retraining program that kicked into action and looked around the neighboring area uh, to find out where the demand for jobs was. And they discovered that it was in nursing. And so they set up retraining programs to retrain these welders and other auto workers uh, to become uh, nursing, um, you know, uh, technicians. And so uh, that was an example of how Canada uh, dealt with it. And in the uh, other uh, European countries, we they have tackled some of these problems in a much more effective way uh, than we have. Certainly, uh, they still have problems with drugs. They still have problems with poverty. But to a much smaller degree, the UK has a, has tackled child, uh, ch- uh, child poverty. When they uh, embarked on a program, they reduced child poverty by half. In Portugal, they have reduced um, by two-thirds the number of overdose doses from drugs, and Portugal now is is sort of an exemplar in in the Western in Western Europe. We have just fallen behind, and if you go by uh, sort of some statistics, the Social Progress Index that looks at indicators, all sorts of indicators uh, of a country, we are as a whole, number 26 among OECD countries in terms of those rankings. Number 26, you know, look. Aren't we supposed to be the top of the world, number one? Right. So when this subject comes up often, the comparison between America and European democracies, for instance, the word that, that critics push back with is socialism. Well, those are those are countries that indulge a far greater degree of socialist thinking than, than we do. Uh, I wonder if you could address why that is maybe not the best uh, the best answer in y- in your view well so i mean i think it's a it's a it's it's a misnomer um i think that what you see in these countries is simply a more compassionate approach and one that invests in human capital so we looked at how it is for example that denmark can pay mcdonald's workers uh or, you know why mcdonald's pays workers in denmark a minimum of about $20 an hour, whereas obviously much less in the U.S. And it's uh, and how that fits in the business model. Um, and it's partly because McDonald, uh, because uh, Denmark simply invests in in the so in the human capital and the social capital of workers there, so that they are more 
productive. A, a bottom-level worker in the U.S. may not be a high school graduate, may not be literate, may not be numerate, uh, may be struggling with a dependency. In Denmark, because of those cumulative capital investments, that's less likely. And, you know, the, the whole socialism thing I just think is such a uh, kind of a red herring. You know, I grew up in Oregon, and we talked always about pioneers and our ancestors crossing the country, rugged individualism. Uh, these people would never have taken a benefit. But, you know, the whole reason the pioneers crossed the country to get to the Willamette Valley was because of a government benefit program, because once they got to Oregon, they would get a homestead. They'd get 640 acres. And likewise, Oregon was just transformed first by homesteads, then by rural electrification, then by the GI Bill of Rights. And those were sensible investments in supporting families to build up capital, to build up uh, human hmm. uh, capital. And that's, you know, that's not socialism. That's supporting your own citizens. Hmm. Uh, again, Ed, thanks very much for the call uh, and the really great comments. Let's go to Myrna in Ypsilanti. Myrna, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, sure. I was just wondering if they've talked about the uh, decline of unions and how that affects the workers, because I think the Republicans have been doing whatever they can to destroy the power of unions and turn states into right-to-work states mm. yeah. in this country. Yeah, great question, Myrna. And, of course, Michigan is one of those states that has been changed to a right-to-work state. I, I wonder, though, what effect that has in rural communities and whether that's the same as what we see uh, in places like uh, like Detroit. Actually, it is. Uh, it's a huge impact. I mean, you can actually trace the uh, the minimum wage um, suppression, basically, that it's not keeping up with production, uh, productivity, or inflation, uh, to the influence of unions. Uh, it is true that in the 1970s, unions may have had too much power, uh, and so they basically wrested it from unions and gave it to business. So they overshot. I mean, now business just really has too much power. There should be a balance. Uh, you know, unions were getting corrupt. Uh, you know, they have to re improve reform. Uh, but, you know, you do need a much better balance of power because the workers really are at a disadvantage. Hmm. Uh, again, Myrna, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Uh, just like your guest to comment on uh, the effects of uh, affordable housing, uh, and the brutal effects they have on the middle class and working class, both urban and rural. Mm. Great question, Gene. Thanks for the call. Uh, I mean, it's, this is a, a huge problem. And, you know, we, we point out in Tightrope that one of the big problems with homelessness is, you know, even for people who have a full-time job. And we give examples of that. People, you know, people who... Who, who work full-time and yet still can't afford uh, housing. Um, uh, and that's because of this fraying of, of income since about the 1970s, the, for the, about the bottom half of the distribution. The work just has stopped paying. So in 2018, the average weekly wage was, after adjusting for inflation, lower than it had been in 1973. Um, uh, and the the uh, average family's net worth is lower now than it was before the financial crisis. So we've got to, that's one reason to focus on having work pay 
again. If mm. if 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 pay had kept up with the economy, uh, then the average uh, annual uh, non-supervisory wage would not be forty-three thousand dollars a year, but closer to ninety thousand a year. And if people, if if the average income was 90000 then there'd be a lot less of a problem with affordable housing. One of the other issues we talk about in Tightrope is the fact that zoning has played a really big role in not having enough affordable housing. So yes, they did cut the budget for affordable housing, but we also need to reform zoning rules that actually um, you know, require in some areas you have to have single-family homes. Well, of course, it's much more efficient if you build up, as mm-hmm. in Manhattan, and you have lots of tall buildings, you can put more apartments in them at affordable prices. Uh, before we have to end, I, I would be remiss in having the two of you here without having you address the state of politics in 2020 just a little more broadly. I wonder, after this fairly depressing conversation about the state of uh, of our economy and, and culture, really, um, whether you are optimistic about the health of our democracy, is our democracy at risk because of these things that you're talking about in this book? I think that it's definitely at risk, but there are a couple of reasons why I am I think that there is a real opportunity to address these issues and make progress. And one is that over the last 50 years, we steadily saw uh, efforts to cut taxes and cut investment in human capital. And I wonder if that hasn't peaked. When I watched Kansas uh, rebel against uh, Governor Sam Brownback's cuts mm-hmm. and actually reinvest more in schools and raise taxes. I wondered if that wasn't a a turning point. And now you look at polling and uh, there's pretty broad support for raising taxes and uh, uh, and indeed providing more social services. So that's one reason I hope that the political system will follow. And also I'd say that We've learned now what works and what doesn't work, and so we and everybody kind of understands that mass incarceration was just a big failure. Mm-hmm. And so you have Texas, of all places, leading the way in in cutting uh, numbers of of inmates. Um, so I'm I think that we took a 50 year wrong turn mm-hmm. that deviated us from the our peer advanced countries. I'm hopeful that now, finally, in the next few years, we'll correct that that uh, and and adopt some more sensible policies. Go ahead, Cheryl. Uh, I actually think that healthcare is one area that can bring um, people together, and also early childhood education. Uh, so, in healthcare, you have a lot of red states that are expanding Medicaid, and we've talked to so many people uh, in you know who are supporters of Trump, who actually are so you know grateful for uh, their their Medicaid, their mm-hmm. their programs there. And so, I think that's one area that we can find common ground. And then, early childhood education—you've got some great early childhood education programs uh, in red states that are leaders in this field. And I think that, you know, that's something that can be scaled up, it can be replicated, and uh, it can create enormous amount of opportunity across the board. Okay. Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun, authors of the new book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. It was really, really great to have you with us. Thank Thank you you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. That's going to be it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. We're going to have a conversation about Ayanna Presley and the politics of black hair, especially for black women. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. 
We'll talk more tomorrow.